Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from an academic and author who has written about the way technology has undermined our trust in the traditional pillars of society. Efficiency is kind of the enemy of trust. It needs friction. It needs investment in time on both sides. And you actually need the time and the information to be able to say, is this person, is this product, is this company, is this piece of information, does it actually deserve my trust? And that's the piece that worries me the most is because I can't see a company that's going to intentionally slow people down to question whether they're giving their trust away in a smart way. That was Rachel Botsman, who came into the FT to talk to me about her book, Who Can You Trust? How Technology Brought Us Together and Why It Could Drive Us Apart. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you for having me. The central claim of your book is that we are going through the third biggest trust revolution in human history. Could you briefly summarise the thesis of your book for those listeners who haven't read it? Sure. So the idea is if you zoom out and you take a macro view of the way trust works in society, it's basically gone through three distinct chapters. The first chapter, which I think is the easiest to understand because it's innately human, very physical is local trust. So this is when we lived in small villages and communities where everyone kind of knew everyone else. If I did something dodgy, everyone in the community would know about it. And it was largely based on our reputation, referrals from friends, relatives, that type of thing. And that type of trust worked for a very long period of time. We then, of course, went through mass urbanization, people moving to big cities, us wanting to expand circles of trade. So we invented institutional trust. Trust still flowed locally between people, but we started to invent all these kinds of mechanisms, everything from corporate brands, middlemen such as lawyers and real estate agents and brokers, and other mechanisms such as contracts and insurance. And what that enabled was that trust didn't need to be directly between people that you knew. It could flow through these institutions. And again, that existed for a relatively long period of time. Now, I'm not saying those two chapters of trust are going away. They're still equally important. But what technology is doing is it inherently takes this institutional trust that used to flow upwards in quite a hierarchical control fashion, upwards to regulators, experts, leaders, referees, CEOs, and it distributes it through network systems and platforms amongst many people again. And it's actually in its infancy, you wouldn't say, oh, I'm using forms of distributed trust. But if you get your news through social media, Twitter, Facebook, you're on a system of distributed trust. If you've ever got in a car with a stranger on Blablacar or Uber, if you've ever stayed in a home on Airbnb, if you've ever traded in cryptocurrencies, these are all early signs of trust moving away from institutions to individuals again. So in a way, we're moving from an era of hierarchies to networks. Hierarchies to networks, yeah, or institutions to individuals. So weirdly, it's kind of reinventing this local form of trust, but it's doing it through technology in ways on a scale that we've never seen before. And how responsible is technology for destroying that trust in institutions, do you think? 
So that's the interesting question. It was an assumption I had, or a hunch, I should say, that there were two parallel things going on, that technology in some way was eroding our faith in institutions and amplifying our fears and anger towards institutions. And at the same time, it was changing the direction and the nature of trust. And both those things are happening. So Technology is one driver, but it's a very important driver in terms of how our faith in institutions is being destroyed. Because what happens is it becomes really easy to find the information, whether it be true or false, to verify those fears and to amplify the anger. So the cycle of distrust around institutions gets more and more magnified. And that becomes a virus. And we're seeing that virus spread. And it could be a lack of trust in the media, the traditional media, a lack, of, yes, um, a lack of trust in government, charities, I find it fascinating and slightly frightening, religious organizations. And I mean, when we talk about a lack of trust, I think it's important to tap into how people are feeling. Because a lack of trust is actually quite a hard thing to describe. It actually comes down to, I don't believe this person. I don't believe this system. I am worried that other shortcomings are lurking somewhere. I'm questioning what or whom can be relied upon. And when people are in that state, it creates a very fragile place for society. It creates a trust vacuum. And that's where we see other voices rise up that are very good at speaking to people's fears and their hopes in a way that maybe wouldn't resonate if there wasn't this erosion of trust in institutions. And that really wouldn't be possible without the impact of digital technologies. Now, one of the responses that we have when there's a scandal in a church or a government institution or a company is that people often demand greater transparency and accountability. But there are some philosophers like Onora O'Neill, for example, who argue that transparency can often be completely counterproductive. It further erodes the trust in institutions because it exposes all the inner workings of a lot of these institutions. And what's more needed is honesty, reliability and competence. Do you think she's right about that? Is transparency inherently a good thing or can it be dangerous in itself? Yeah, I mean, I find it astonishing and slightly frightening that transparency has become this magical cure for, I even hate the term rebuilding trust. It's a very strange term in itself. But this idea that transparency is going to fix it, because if you think about what trust really is, so the way I define trust is it's a confident relationship to the unknown. So trust is actually this kind of beautiful alchemy between expectations and vulnerabilities. It's about not actually knowing the outcome. If you know the outcome, no trust is required. And so it's very weird that people talk about transparency and trust as brother and sister, trust and risk of brother and sister, because if you need for things to be transparent, you've actually given up on trust. Transparent teams, transparent societies, they are not high trust societies, they're very low trust societies. You see this in relationships, in marriages, people who need to know everything about where that person is. That's not a high trust relationship. So I think that's one issue. More transparency doesn't lead to more trust. It actually reduces the need for trust. The other issue, I think, is I agree with Honora O'Neill, but I actually think the most important trait we should be talking about is integrity. Because I think when we're calling for transparency, and this could be in government, it could be in a charity, it could be in a tech company, radical transparency, what we really need reassurance and confidence around is that that company or that leader's intentions are aligned 
with people and society's well-being. And if we believe their intentions, we don't need transparency. And I just think it's a false promise that companies are making that they can make things more transparent. And I think regulators are calling for it because the systems are too complicated. So it sounds like a good thing. We'll make things transparent so you can understand them. We'll make things transparent so we can understand how algorithms work. But we need to be having a very different conversation around integrity. So honesty and competence really are, in that sense, more important than transparency per se. Yeah, honesty, integrity, and really that comes down to the company or the person's intentions. Now, one country where we're seeing absolutely radical transparency is in China, where people's data is being exposed to companies and to the government itself. And this system of social credit scoring, which you write about in your book, has been introduced or is being introduced. Is that a terrifying way to go? Or is there something to be said for that transparency enforcing good behaviour in society? I can never find the right word to actually describe how terrifying it is. And I think, you know, they first announced this idea that every citizen in China would have a trust score, a social citizen score. And that was first introduced in 2014. And it's only now that we're really starting to see how it's playing out, both in terms of the collection of information and all the inputs that are going into that. You know, they recently announced that they're going to do random voice sampling when you go to the doctor. Well, if they have that, they can actually figure out what you're saying in phone calls. But also what happens to people's lives when they end up on the blacklist. And what really frightens me is the public humiliation and any kind of culture of forgiveness, any kind of culture where you can delete and move on disappears. Not much sense of a right to be forgotten. In no China. sense of right to be forgotten. And also the crime doesn't always correlate with the punishment. So what they claim as being untrustworthy, so you didn't pay your bill on time, the consequence of that is that your children might not be able to go to a certain school. So I think it's very easy to point to China and say that would never happen in the West. And I think it's really interesting when you speak to people in China that they actually believe the government's intention that it's going to create a more trustworthy society. But the question we really need to ask ourselves is how far off are we from this type of system? And what could this kind of system look like? I mean, I don't think it would lie in the hands of government, but how far off are we from this kind of surveillance with the tech companies? Interestingly, Tim Cook was in Brussels speaking recently about the emergence of a data industrial complex and yeah. saying that all of this data gathering was being weaponized against us. Mm. Is he right about that, do you think? I think he is. I don't trust Tim Cook's intentions <laughs> with this announcement. Right. What, what, what I don't do you think believe his intentions, his intentions are, I mean... Because they were too self-serving. He's trying to create clear water. You strip it back and the business model of Apple does not depend on data in the same way as Google and Facebook. And I think what he's trying to do is put them in a different camp and actually say, you know, Apple can operate in a different way where we don't need to be dependent on people's data. And this is a very convenient and clear way of pointing the finger at the other tech giants and saying that we're different. Do I believe what he's saying? Absolutely. But again, I am not shocked, but it continues to amaze me around how Facebook is handling its trust crisis in that it is trying to find solutions around transparency. And the problem is fundamentally in the business model. So I think Tim Cook is really smart. And then the more he points to the problem of having an ad-based business model and that you can't serve the needs of users, if that's the case, it's a really smart move by Apple. Okay. How can technology help solve the problem of distrust in society? 
Can you talk more about this concept of <laughs> distributed trust? Yeah, and I think there's a question before that. In does technology solve the problem? I mean, this is one of the things that I really study. Is technology enabling us to become smarter about whom we trust? Or is it encouraging us to give our trust away too easily to the wrong people in the wrong places? And what's the answer to that? It's a bit of both. I think there's some amazing examples of where we're enabled to place our faith in people and complete strangers in ways that would be unimaginable, even 10, 15 years ago. And you see this in the workings of marketplaces like Alibaba and Amazon and eBay. And even, yes, Airbnb has its problems, but it's still amazing how it enables people to trust one another. And what technology does is it gives us trust signals. So in the same way, I can read signals from sitting opposite you or the signals that you get through friends and recommendations, you can replicate that trust online. So the way it creates new marketplaces, it breaks down barriers, that's remarkable in terms of what it's done for trust. The real issue is that technology accelerates the process. Just think of dating sites, right? I always find it fascinating watching people on dating sites and how quickly you'll swipe right and how much of that behavior now transcends in different areas of our lives that we see something or someone and we accept, we click, we share. And technology is speeding that up and the tech companies are geniuses in designing that process. And this isn't how trust works in a healthy way because efficiency is the enemy of trust. It needs friction. It needs investment in time on both sides and you actually need the time and the information to be able to say is this person is this product is this company is this piece of information does it actually deserve my trust and that's the piece that worries me the most is because I can't see a company that's going to intentionally slow people down to question whether they're giving their trust away in a smart way one of the examples I was thinking about was I was dealing with the currency platforms, trying out different currency platforms, and I really wanted one of them just to say, you know what, only give me one pound of your money because I actually want to demonstrate that this works. And so I think there's so many examples in our lives where just introducing some friction to slow people down would help us make better trust decisions. That's a fascinating concept that efficiency is the enemy of trust. In a way, our institutions are the people who should inject inefficiency into the system, isn't it? They should be the bodies that are trying to slow the process down and saying, is this really a good idea for society? Well, there's many institutions, I would say, that are inefficient enough and slow enough. I think what they do is they use speed in a way that is convenient to them. So terms and conditions are a classic example. I was actually really surprised the other day I was opening up uh, ISA for my son and um, I whipped through the terms and conditions and it popped up that there's no way I could have read them and so it gave them to me again. That's what I call a trust pause. That's saying you're about to give us a lot of money and I want you to actually accept responsibility for clicking on these terms and conditions. So I don't Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. 
want to say that institutions should become less efficient. I think that they could use friction in a way where sometimes they're trying to accelerate us through so we don't think about the decisions that we're making when it comes to trust. Do you think institutions can use some of these methodologies of distributed trust to reinvent their functions and their efficiency. I mean, I'm thinking particularly of the healthcare sector, Mm. where it still staggers me that in so many areas, the National Health Service in this country is incredibly inefficient in ways that consumer tech companies have got round very basic issues so much more easily and injected trust, as you're describing, into casual relationships as well. Yeah. So I think you've got two opportunities and challenges. The first is how do distributed platforms, how do they work with institutions to actually improve the social safety net? And then the second is how can institutions adapt to this new age of distributed trust? Because it's not going to go away. We may not like the consequences, but this is naturally the direction that technology pulls trust. And healthcare is a great example of that. The problem is that so many institutions are designed by institutional rules of trust. They think of trust in a very centralized, controlled, linear fashion, something that can be top down. And to talk about distributed trust, they often see this as letting go. And wherever trust flows, power flows. There's an amazing example in Sweden called Kri, where they've basically taken on GP visits, right? So taken the real mess of the healthcare system and now something like 80% of all GP visits are virtual through this platform called Cre. And I think what's really interesting about that is what they're discovering is people actually share more because there's something about looking at the doctor eye to eye through the computer because often the doctor has their back to you in a surgery, which I thought was really interesting. And also this feeling that there's a little bit of distance so that you can share more. So where they're having real impact is actually around mental health. And the founders, they're the first to admit that if you said there was one condition that you really couldn't treat virtually, it would be mental health, particularly with men over the age of 65, which I think is really interesting. This Clay Shirky quote always comes to mind, that institutions will always try to preserve the problem to which they are the solution. And that gets in the way of so many things. So they're very quick to reject this idea of distributed trust because they'll say, well, it would never work, right? We need this kind of centralized control. But CRI is a really good example that you don't know until you try. And in certain situations, the technology can create an intimacy, a trust between either side that can lead to profoundly better and different results. How much does trust vary between different cultures? You often talk about Blah Blah Car as being a really fascinating example of a distributed trust company, which was originally founded in France and is a ride-sharing app which people use on a massive scale in France and many other countries around Europe now. But something similar was tried in America a few years previous to that and was a spectacular failure. Is there something of a difference between cultures in which some people are prepared to trust particular systems and not in others? I always think only in France would you call a company blah, blah, car, right? (laughs) In England, blah, blah, car. What's interesting about blah, blah, cars, they've tried to launch in the US as other platforms. It's less to do with trust. So, and I should say blah, blah, car, when we talk about ride sharing, this is an Uber. It's long distance ride sharing. So the average trip is over 300 kilometers. So that's just not about trust. That's compatibility because there's a long way to be in the car with someone that you don't like. What they actually found was it was a critical mass of routes that made it much harder to penetrate that market. I still think it's a massive untapped opportunity and there's something going on there that isn't around trust. And then it's been its success in Russia. 
and Mexico in places that you might not expect that people would feel safe getting in a car with a total stranger. So on the whole, culturally, with the exceptions of places like China, there's more similarities and differences. The one area that we really do not know enough about, and this is the area that I'm starting to really dig deep into, is gender and trust. Mm. And I find it staggering that we don't know this. So at the most basic level, do women and men trust differently in digital environments? Can can you give us some examples of that? I mean, there's so many. Do men look at more quantitative signals? Are ratings more important to you, John, than reviews? So do women tend to read page three of the reviews? So they're more qualitative in nature. I don't know that. It's just an example. Is gender an important trust signal on, say, a ride-sharing platform like Uber. So would I feel safer sharing a ride with a female driver? And is that the same according to different times of day? You can think of it in dating sites. So do women actually need different kinds of information to men to feel safe moving from a digital environment to a physical environment? So in the same way women and men respond to different trust signals when we're face-to-face, it's really important to understand how that happens in digital environments. Okay. We can't talk much about distributed trust without raising the issue of blockchain, and you write extensively about that in your book. What is your overall take on blockchain? Is it going to be a good solution to a lot of the issues that we've been talking about? I honestly do not know where blockchain is going to take us. My macro view on blockchain is that it will transform the way value flows. So I think in the way the internet has changed the flow of information, that's going to be the impact of blockchain. How that plays out in our lives, I still do not know. I think blockchain is going to be interesting in low trust situations or in situations where we pay a lot of money for trusted intermediaries and suddenly we can remove them. So I think it's understandable that when people often talk about blockchain, they'll say in the same breath an example around property or exchanging land titles because there's lots of middlemen, there's lots of friction. It's a process that doesn't work for many people. But how blockchain could change the way we transfer value with low-trust countries, say Somalia, or low-trust individuals or low-trust situations, that I think is really interesting. So I can see specific examples where it's incredibly useful. And one of our previous guests on Tectonic, Leanne Kemp from Everledger, is using it, I think, very successfully to prove the provenance of diamonds, for example. That's a very specific and a narrow case that it's being used for. But some of the architects or the advocates of blockchain make really very grand sweeping claims about the future of distributed trust and how it's going to revolutionize society. So you're more skeptical on that front. Yeah, I mean, I write about Leanne in the book because I discovered that my engagement ring was a dodgy diamond. So I had like a real interest in what Leanne was doing. When I started writing the book, I think I was a lot more optimistic around what distributed trust could do to our lives, how it can enable us to all trust one another more. And It was actually through really studying what was going on with Ethereum and looking at what happens when things go wrong and how you can have what should be one of the most decentralized systems. And when things go wrong, you still need to know who's in charge. People still look for hierarchy. They still look for accountability. So I think that is the challenge of how do we take these distributed networks but still create some kind of center or create a new kind of social safety net so that there isn't this void of accountability, not knowing who to go to when things go wrong. 
And that I think is actually what is really playing out with Facebook and Google right now is ultimately who is responsible for what goes on that platform and who is responsible when things go wrong. And they are the major questions around distributed trust that we haven't resolved yet. You said that you were less optimistic than when you wrote the book. What has made you less optimistic? Um, Many things. It was a real journey writing this book because, you know, it kind of left off from my first book that was really on the sharing economy. And when I first wrote the sharing economy book, which was 10 years ago, What's Mine Is Yours, we couldn't see then the unintended consequences of sharing assets via platforms. The difference with this book is as I was writing it, the issues and problems of distributed trust were starting to hit very fast, particularly around information and media. And we were starting to see the consequences and everything from Brexit to the election of President Trump. So I think I started to realise how much these systems could be manipulated and what was really at stake here when people don't know what or whom to trust, the consequences that that can have for society is absolutely massive. Because as we saw in Brexit, people trusted a stranger on the bus or a sign on the bus more than they trusted an expert. You know, with the election of Trump, they trusted the emotional truth over the factual truth. And so really, I was feeling that as I was writing the book, thinking about the consequences of this new era, both good and bad, are absolutely enormous. It's a fascinating issue on Brexit, isn't it? Because I believe that one of the strongest correlates for how people voted was how far they lived apart from where they were born. So in other words, the, the local trust was really very important for people in determining how they voted. Yeah. And I think that's only going to get louder, this amplification, because when you're living in a state of fear and disenchantment and anger, the mind, the human body contracts. So that circle becomes smaller in terms of who you turn to for advice, information, what you believe. So um, to me, that's very frightening. Now, we often ask our guests three final questions. Who do I trust? (laughs) Well, that's a very good question. Who do you trust? For what? I think this is the thing. Trust is so contextual. Even for like people say, who do you trust for the news? And I trust, of course, the FT. But no, I mean, I go to different sources for different things, which I think is quite critical. So you would use all three trust networks, as it were? Yes, I would. I actually love reading local news. I live in Oxford. I read the Oxford News. It's really interesting. It's a really interesting pulse as to what's happening. Yes, a complete bubble living in Oxford. And then I read a lot of international news. And it's different. I don't read the same thing every week, I think, is the point. And that's the thing that I find really interesting is that if you have a subscription, that's your view on the world. But I think it's this whole thing of seeing trust as really, really contextual. So if you want news on business versus you want news on health, I don't think you get that from the same source. And in terms of distributed trust, who do you trust in that world now? In terms of the platforms, um, one of my issues, I'm a very, very trusting person. I give my trust away really easily. So... I am more discerning when I use these platforms. That can be something transactional. So when I'm buying something off eBay, I'm very aware now of how ratings and reviews can be completely manipulated. I'm very aware now of what I get through my recommendation engines. I kind of ignore that stuff. So I think I'm skeptical in a healthy way, but I still use these things. It's just that I get more information. I'm slower in making my decisions. And you're now reading the terms and conditions for ISAs. No, I'm not. (laughs) I still don't read terms and conditions, but 
I'm more aware of when someone's trying to push me through something or when someone's trying to make the experience feel really easy up front to lock me in. There's something going on there that I do not trust. Okay. Now, our three questions are, what do you think is the most overrated or underrated technology? That's a really good question. I'm going to come back to it. Ask me the second one. Uh, The second one is, what do you think is the biggest threat to the technology sector at the moment? Fear. I think fear can be a driver of change or it can be a virus. And at the moment, it's a virus that's spreading really, really fast. I think we need to convert it into a force of change to change the narrative around trust and technology. I think it's got negative really, really quickly. And while we're in this place of fear, what it means is the tech companies, they move really quickly with the decisions that they're making and they're not necessarily deep long-term decisions. And that fear can also be a really big driver internally. So I think one of the most powerful changes we've seen is actually in employees saying these aren't ethical decisions and we have to make change here and them not being able to attract the talent they used to attract. So fear, I think, is the threat and the opportunity. What is the one book that you would recommend to our listeners to understand this new world of technology that is not actually a technology book? New Power. It's a great book by Jeremy Hymans and Henry Timms. Henry runs the 92Y in New York and Jeremy's been a big change activist. I think we don't think enough about this link between technology, trust and power and it's a really interesting look at what's happening to power in society. And they talk about technology but it's not about technology. And my favourite metaphor they give which is just genius, is they talk about a world that we grew up in playing Tetris. And I remember this game, right? The blocks would fall and we'd line them up in a really linear fashion. And the thing that was so stupid about that game is you could never beat the system, right? Like I, I remember hours poured into that game. And then they talk about Minecraft. And my son plays Minecraft. And I watched him play and I said to him once, I don't understand how this game works. Because, you know, they go into all these worlds and they're porting and they're trying to transform things. And he said to me, and he's seven years old, he said, it's my world and my rules. And what New Power does is it sets up all these technologies that want to operate in a Minecraft fashion, my world, my rules. But they're living in a Tetris world of institutions. And you think of all these clashes that we're seeing, it's Minecraft being played in a Tetris world. And so it's really good framing in that sense. Uh Going back to the first question, underrated or overrated technology? I am very, very short-sighted. So I think an underrated technology is glasses being able to see because recently my glasses changed and the prescription was completely wrong. And for three weeks I lived with not being able to see and I suddenly realised how incapable most people would be without this invention and it made me think of all the amazing work that companies like Vision Central do just to fix sight. So we think of technologies that enhance human capabilities and enable us to do remarkable things but we've kind of lost sight of how remarkable technologies are that just fix basic ailments that really become a disability if we didn't have them in our lives. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Rachel. Well, I hope that's inspired you to contribute to our informal survey. If you'd like to take part in the debate, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, 
take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.